Well, everyone, we're in our last week of this series. Um, from the beginning, we've been in the book of First John. Um, so I'm just going to point out some flaws about myself right now um, that were both planned and unplanned. Um, I couldn't remember what the title of the sermon was supposed to be for this week, and I kept thinking, I'll get to that. It's not love week, and I don't really know what it is off the top of my head, but it's too late now. So um, it's something about idolatry, and so we're going to talk about that, because as we come to the end of the book of 1 John, that's where we need to go. Um, But as we start today, um, I want to tell you, whenever I sit up here, um, I get asked by people sometimes, are you nervous? And the answer is always yes. And I'm, I'm nervous, and I always think about three things. Um, the first thing I always think about is, what if the pro presenter machine goes down? Because then I won't remember my sermon outline, because um, the, the, the slides are my, my cheat sheet. Um, the second thing I think about is, did I do enough? Did I study enough? Did I put enough time in? I, I feel confident in what the Lord's revealed, but maybe I missed something, and I'm going to get up there and realize it, or after someone will tell me something. And, and so that's a fear that I have, that um, I, I try and work out. And then the third thing I think, and this is true, and it might sound weird at first, um, I always think I'm glad in heaven we're going to wear ropes. And the reason for that um, is that I think it is impossible to properly tuck in a shirt. Um, and you, some of you are laughing because you're like, Matt, you never tuck in a shirt right. I'm going to untuck my shirt today. We're going to get real. Um, and the reason I'm going to untuck my shirt is hopefully it will visualize for all of you how uncomfortable I am when there's a, and maybe this, you know what, this shirt was not tailored the way. I thought it was going to be like a, you know, the weird shirts that are like this. It's not. So maybe this is okay untucked. My wife is not here to tell me whether this was a good idea or bad idea. She's home with our kids. But when I get up here, um, I often think that my performance will validate Christ's love for me. And it's so wicked because it cheapens the cross. And so today as we close, this is what we're going to talk about. Um, And some of you might be like, this is kind of heavy for the end of a series. And it's not my fault because the passage ends the way it ends. And so I'm going to read the passage and then we're going to jump in. Um, And I pray you will be encouraged by this. I pray that you won't be too distracted by my untucked shirt. Um, I think my untucked shirt might be less distracting than how I normally tuck it in, if I'm being honest, because as soon as I go like this, it... Got like the, but that's me. And again, most of you are probably like, I never think about this. And now the next time I preach, you're going to be like, oh, he does that. But, but I care deeply about what people think of me. And a lot of times it's the thing that keeps me from being who I am in Christ and living the life I'm supposed to have. If you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to open to 1 John 5, 13 through 21. We're going to jump in in one moment. But first, I'd like to pray. Father, you who are that which was from the beginning and before, loved this world so much that you sent your only Son that we might understand your great love. You sent him that he, could, or that he would give his life for us, that he would show us the greatest, most perfect example of love. In his innocence, he laid down his life for others. He laid down his life for his friends and who, for all who would call on him. 
Father, we thank you so much for that example of love. We thank you that in that example of love, we also have evidence of your great love for us. We pray as we move forward today that you would help us move away from the things that we idolize and help us move towards your truth. I pray that you would give us wisdom, that your spirit would be moving, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that you would be speaking through me and to me with this message. It's in your name we pray. Amen. First John five thirteen through 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. I want to review because this passage, the the first line of this passage says, um, I am writing, or I write these things to you. And when he says, I write these things to you, we have to immediately decide in 1 John 5.13, is he referring to the previous paragraph or idea? Or is he referring to the whole book? And I think it's safe to say when we come to 1 John 5.13 through 21, he's summarizing the book. And so the, the positive side of the sum, oh, whoa, this is the question. I skipped it. We're going to go back to that. If we summarize the book in its simplest form, the beginning, we see that God is the source of life. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are our source of life. There is no life outside of God. And if we want to have that life, the way we have that life is we recognize that God is light. God is light, which means he is perfect, he is fully righteous. And if we, if we want to have life with him, it means we need to walk in the light. And through the last nine weeks, I hope you've seen that, that even though we're not perfect— through the blood of Jesus, through confession and community, through the way that we love one another, we can have confidence that we walk in the light even as we still sin. Not that we should sin, but our sin does not remove us from the light unless we allow it to. And our patterns of sin over time hopefully grow less and less so we walk more and more in the light. And then we talked about how God is love. If we are walking, if we have life from God, If we walk in the light, the outcome is going to be the way we love one another is going to be motivated by the way that he first loved us. When he laid down his life, he did it that we might experience love, that we might share that with others. He did it so that we would have the Holy Spirit so that we could walk in the light together. And and this becomes this 
interconnected thing. We've talked about this a lot, how the book of 1 John is kind of one big idea put into three things and braided together, and you, you go through, and the point is that we can have life, and how do we have light? By walking in the light. How do we know we're walking in the light? By being obedient, and how are we obedient? By the way we love one another inside the church first, and then how we love those outside the church. And then if we do all of that, if we do all of that, then we have life, and if we have light, then that means we're walking in the light, and it's this cycle. And it's, it's both all or nothing, and the thankful thing of this book is that over and over in this book, John is going to tell us, when you do fall, love one another and bring each other back. When you do fall, confess your sin. Don't let your sin be the thing that drives you. When you do fall, lean back into the community. And when a brother falls or a sister falls, lift them up in prayer. When a brother or sister falls, love them in such a way that they come back in. And if we live in this community together, not only do we have life with God, we have life with each other. And it's this beautiful picture that is so hard to have. Because when we're vulnerable, we're going to get ripped sometimes. People are going to really hurt us. And when we're vulnerable, someone else may not be. And we have to deal with that. But if we want to have life with God... He's given us a very clear picture of it. The fear I have whenever I think about this stuff, and I I go back and forth on this. When I was younger, I was always worried. I always thought, how can I know that I have life when all is said and done? How can I know? Because I want to believe that I have life. I want to believe that I'm doing all these things right, but, but there's a paradox in Christianity, right? Because we know we're not saved by our works. We're not saved by anything we've done. If we could sa- be saved by what we could do, Christ would not have died for us. That was not a cheap death where God says, this will be easier for everyone. That was the only way. So as soon as I start thinking my actions save me, I've missed the point of the cross, And as soon as I start leaning on the cross but not having actions that match an understanding of the cross, it means I'm not living in obedience. And so you can go back and forth and there's this paradox of our works don't save us but they show we are saved. And somewhere in there I know that it is the blood of Jesus that has saved me but I know the way I know I've been saved is by the way I act and the way I follow in obedience to him. And I know this. And it's still hard. I have less doubt now than when I was younger about it, and I have more profound doubts now when I think about it. And it, it, it's, it's both a harder thing and an easier thing. And I'm smarter about how I think about it, even to deceive myself. And so I hope we're going to answer the question today of how can we know that we really have life when all is said and done. And that all is said and done, when all is said and done, there's a reality that, that we could almost just, how can we know that we really have life? And you could just omit that second part. Because Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the full today. He did not come that we would just have it when we die. He came that we would have it for now and always. He came that, we would, that earth would be, as it is in heaven on earth, that we would be here living in fellowship with him and fellowship with one another in the way we were originally created to do empowered by the Holy Spirit, living in light and love, experiencing life with God. So we're going to jump back in. And this passage, I hope you noticed how many times the word no showed up. Like K-N-O-W. See, that's... 
So let's jump back in the passage. Last week, my jokes were off, but that one was solid. Um, okay, so 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So in a moment, we're going to look at what the first thing we know is. But first, we need to, we need to think about a few things. Um, when it says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. The first thing we need to notice is that this passage in this book is written for believers. If you do not believe that Jesus, if you do not believe in the name of the Son of God, if you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, if you do not believe that Jesus is the one who in Eden God promised a serpent at the fall, that one will come who will defeat you, who will crush your head and you will strike his heel. If you do not believe Jesus is the one that Moses said, there will come a perfect prophet. If you do not believe that Jesus is the one that God said to David, there will be one from your line and one from my line. A thousand years before the birth of Jesus, God promised David, and this is in writing, thousand years or 700, however we want to date it, years before Jesus, there was a promise that there would come one from the line of David and the line of God who would reign forever, who would have the capacity to sit on a throne forever. Throughout all the prophets, through Isaiah, there was one that was prophesied who would give sight to the blind and who would help the lame to walk and who would heal our afflictions, both external and physical, internal, and our afflictions of sin that prevents us from right community with God for eternity and now. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus. The whole New Testament is built off believing in the name of the Son of God. And so as we talk about this passage today, I just want to make sure it's clear. If you are not a believer, the good news is the king of the kingdom that is perfect and will reign forever says, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, I have already laid down your life for you, or my life for you. And all he asks is that we would believe. But this is the second thing we have to talk about. Because the word believe is a cheap word in English. It is a very cheap word. The word believe in English, like, okay, some of you may believe that the Bears might win a football game today. Some of you might believe that. And that is a radical belief. One, because I believe, and by believe, I mean I think, Matt Nagy is still the coach. Is he? Does anyone know? Good. Okay, good, bad. But, um, but, but more importantly than talking about Matt Nagy, it's a bye week. So if you believe they could win today, I mean, it's, do byes count as wins? I don't know. I, um, that's all I got there. But the, the point is, is that we think of belief as an intellectual knowledge of something that we just categorize away. I believe two plus two is four. I, I believe, I don't know, I, this is hard, I don't, I don't know if I believe in ghosts, I go back and forth, like there's demonic things, but then are they ghosts of people departed, or are they ghosts of, I don't know, we could talk about that for hours, and it would derail us completely, but the point is, is that the way that we use the word believe is intellectual. When John uses the word believe, if you go through the Gospel of John, if you go through the letters of John, if you go through the book of Revelation, when God talks about, or when John talks about belief in God and Jesus, the Son of God, if you believe in the name of the Son of God, John is talking about you are moving towards Him. That means the way you were living before, you are now moving towards Him. And it will not be perfect. That's what we've been talking about this whole series. 
But if you believe in him and your life looks exactly the same, you do not believe in him in the way that the Bible says you should. The Bible is a book about life transformation, and somehow in English, we turn this idea into, well, I said a prayer, I know where I get to go when I die, as if that's all that matters in the teaching of Jesus. And what's really sad in this is when you read through the, all of the works of John, one of the biggest themes is this idea of overcoming. Because when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he did so that we might receive the Spirit, the Helper, so that we who could never change our sin could overcome it through him. Let's be honest, it's still not just us doing it, it's him doing it in us. And in John, he says, I have overcome the world to his disciples as he calls them friends and says, I'm about to lay down my life for you. I have overcome the world. The world says I should come and I should destroy those who are my enemies and instead I sit at a table with them, I break bread with them, I die in their place. I have overcome the world and the sin of the world. In Revelation, he talks to the churches, and to each church, he addresses a positive and a negative, or or differently, he talks about all seven churches, but at the base of all of those, to the one who overcomes, to the one who overcomes. And the challenge of the book, or that portion of the book, is to believers to say, overcome sin. Do not stay in the same patterns. And we'll talk about this more as we go, but we cannot miss that when we talk about believing in the name of the Son of God, It means living differently. And if we cannot articulate how we live differently over a period of time, I don't know that we believe in the way the Bible intends. So the things we know if we believe in Jesus as John finishes his letter, the first thing we know is that we have eternal life. Have eternal life. Not will have eternal life. We have it now. We are given this amazing gift. We have it now And we have it for eternity. If we believe in his name, if we follow after him. It goes on. And this is the confidence that we have towards him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Now on the surface, this sounds like he hears us and responds. When we pray, he responds to our prayer and gives us what we ask for. Um, And in a way, this is true, but we have to keep reading because the next verses are tied to the same no idea. It's he, he hears us and he responds. And so if anyone sees his brother or sister in Christ committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. If you see someone that's walking towards darkness, walking into sin, and you pray to God, God hears and he responds. Now that that does not mean... And I think this is important. That does not mean that the other person will respond. But that means that God, we know that God responds. When we see someone walking in darkness and we pray for them and we we call out to them and we cry out to them and we, we cry out to God and we tell them, we know that God responds. They may not respond, but we know that God responds to our intercession on behalf of other believers. And I believe he responds to our intercession on behalf of all. This passage gets really complicated because it goes on. He shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. And then it says there is sin that leads to death. Now, some of you might be like, if Matt asked me, I could answer what the sin is that leads to death. And some people think it's suicide, but that's not it. 
Um, I, we, we could talk about suicide and theology of suicide. We're not going to do that here. But what I want to make clear is that there is one sin that John is talking about. There is a sin that leads to death. There are, in some capacity, different levels of sin. And all sin is sin, so I don't want to minimize and say, well, you did a smaller sin, so it's no big deal. But there is a sin that John sees as far greater than other sin. And, and the key to this is understanding this word death. You see, when we started this series, we talked about life and how Jesus is the word of life. He is life. He is eternal life. He gives us life. When we come to the end of this passage, remember, this is a letter to believers. And if you remember, in the middle of the book, we talked about the idea of antichrists, plural. um, And I don't know if my pronunciation of it will say that well enough, but antichrists. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. And they went out from us, but they were not of us. When it talks about what an Antichrist is or what they are, it's talking about people who say they are a part of the church. It's talking about those people and saying they say they're part of the church, and then at some point while they were among us, they decide to go out and they begin to do a new teaching. And all of the sudden, it became clear that they do not believe on the name of Jesus Christ. And at that point, John says, either, either they believed, and then they didn't believe, and they rejected what they'd been given. They said, Holy Spirit, I don't want you anymore. They said, Jesus, I reject your gift, and that leads to death. Or they are so entrenched in the lie that on their own, they are moving further and further away from life because they do not want the life that Jesus offers. And so when it talks about there is a sin that leads to death, it is talking about a wholesale of rejection of the gospel after one has accepted it. That is the best way I can put it. Now, some of you are going to say, well, what does that mean for once saved, always saved? And I'd say, talk to John when you get to heaven, because I have no idea. I read this and I think you could say, well, they were never saved in the first place. They were never really among us in the first place. I think that could be fair. But when John is talking here, he says there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. In our community, if someone is wholesale rejecting the gospel, John is saying there's a different way to handle that than to handle if someone is entrenched in other sin. And he's saying if someone fully rejects the gospel and says this is not what I believe anymore and starts walking people astray, because that's a huge motivator for John writing this letter. If people are being walked away from the gospel of King Jesus, let them go. Don't let the people go. Let the person who is doing it go. In fact, if we had like two more weeks for this series, we'd read Second John and Third John, and we'd see how John responds. The, the church was struggling with who are the Antichrists and who are truthful, and they started to not trust anyone outside of their inner circle of believers And so John had to write a letter to them because he heard, hey, this one guy's coming back. And and just so you guys know, we know know he is a false prophet. We know he is an antichrist. We know he's not teaching the gospel. Do not let him in. Do not welcome him back. Do not let him be a part of your fellowship because he has rejected this message. And then the other letter is, hey, guys, this guy's okay. And you may say, well, why, why is John the one allowed to say that? Well, he sat with Jesus at a table. I, I don't think that that is our place to lightly do. But John was trying to say, you can't block everyone out. Your job is to love each other in fellowship. You can't let the fellowship become so insul- insulated that you never grow, but, but you also have to protect 
the fellowship by those who are going to preach something that goes against believing in the name of the Son of God, they can't be welcome. Especially if they say they believe the same thing. And so I hope none of you are in that boat. If you are, I would love to talk to you. Um, I really would, because I, I think the Bible is one of the most, and by one of the, I think it is the only completely logical thing outside of math textbooks that don't have word problems. Um, the, if, if you read the Bible on its terms, it is, it is a, it's a book that spanned 2,000 years in writing that had many authors from many different backgrounds, many la- or multiple languages represented, multiple time periods in history represented, and somehow... The picture of God is consistent from page one to the last page. That's, it's amazing. And and everything that God says he will do, he shows again and again that he will follow consistently his plans. We often like saying the Lord works in mysterious ways. The Lord works in logical ways, and it is mysterious how little we can see that. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. If we are of God, we do not keep sinning. Now, everyone in this room should either say, I'm perfect, or that makes me uncomfortable. Um, Hopefully you're in the, the latter camp there. Because all of us sin, and we keep sinning, and we have patterns And every time we get up to preach, before we're preaching, we're sitting in the back looking. I I don't know if you all preach, but I sit in the back and I look in a mirror and think, how on earth do I tuck my shirt in? Oh, no, they're not going to. I joke about this. But I worry that people are not going to hear the message like it's like the Holy Spirit won't move if my shirt isn't tucked right or if it's not tailored correct. I I have to joke about this because I feel weird about it like this too. And I feel like afterwards someone's going to come up and say, you shouldn't have done that illustration. Um, but, But I joke about this. Because we all do sin, and we have patterns of sin. And we have sins that we do, that we're aware of, and then we have patterns of sin that are in our family over generations. We we have things that we do that we do not realize are sin until we're amongst other believers in fellowship, and we start to realize, huh, the way I think about that, that's not right. And a lot of the sin we have, without help, we, we just stay in it. That's walking in light, exposing the sin, confessing it in community of believers, and allowing them to help us move forward. If we are of God, we do not keep sinning. Is a, is, is, I can put it this simply. This passage is truly about, do we look the same a year later? Do we look the same six months later? If so, I think we should be worried. Are we from God? And I, I, I don't think that, and, and I, I communicate this to you all because this is where this gets hard. Because there have been times in my life where I'm like, I want to just air every sin to someone and then fix all of them at once. And I wish I could. I wish I could just fix every sin in my life at once. The beauty is that Jesus' blood has cleansed all that sin. The trial of my life and the trial of all of your lives, if you follow Jesus, is that overcoming that sin is our job in this lifetime. There are patterns in my life that I'm, I know and I'm working on, and I, I'm sure if I ever get to the point where I truly overcome them, and I believe I can, there are sins I've overcome and there are sins I'm working on overcoming, but I know that if I overcome those sins, I'm not going to say, well, I'm perfect now. I'm going to say, all right, Lord, what's next? Because otherwise, I wouldn't need Jesus. 
And praise the Lord, I do. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, I have been reflecting on this all week, um, and I love this verse. Because just as simple as we are from God is, remember God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but will have eternal life. God sent his son from outside the world into the world that those who respond will not perish. God who is from outside the world in 1st John that that's John the author in John 3:16 in in 1st John 5 we see that for those who believe in the name of Jesus we are no longer from this world. We have been born of God. We, we are struggling in it. We are in the, the mess of the fall. There is sickness, disease, heartache, broken relationships. We are a part of it. We are a party to it. And yet somehow we are no longer from this world. We are born into a new family, born of Christ. We are God, or not born of Christ, born of God through Christ. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If we go back to that, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We don't. We aren't. We know that we are from God. We're not from this world anymore. We're not under the power of the evil one. It is such a simple and radical statement that I think as soon as we start to believe our ability to overcome sin and to live in the truth that we have in Christ will become more and more evident. Because there is no temptation that the Holy Spirit cannot help us through. We may not see it, we may not understand it. But if we are of God, and we are from God, which we are if we believe in the name of Jesus Christ, then we are no longer slaves and subjected to the evil one in this world. And we know that the Son of God has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. I want to draw your attention first to the idea, and by the idea, the word true, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. And the only reason we know all of this is because he came in the first place, The Son of God has come and given us understanding to know that he is true. When I start to think that God does not love me or I've not done enough or I start to think anything along those lines, I can go down these silly patterns in my head, these patterns of sin where I I start to think, well, what could I do to earn that back? I'm going to start reading my Bible more. I'm going to start serving more. I'm going to start, I I can come up with this list. I'm going to be a better pastor. I'm going to be a better father. I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to do all of these things as if any of these things could earn the love that I have from Jesus who came and gave me understanding to know that he is true. And when he says he is true, that means when he says, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. When he said, greater, there's no greater love than this, that, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And, and when Jesus laid down his life, he did so that we would experience and know love in its perfect form. And we would be able to respond to it, even though he did not force us to. 
And so when we come to the end of all of this, I, I hope you see that what we, have, what we know, regardless of how we feel about it, regardless of what we might think we need to do because of it, it is true. And so again, there's a paradox of, well, I'm supposed to act on this, but my actions don't change anything. But if I don't act, it's a sign I don't really believe this. But if I do act and make my actions what I believe in, then all of a sudden I'm idolicizing myself instead of putting Jesus on his throne where he belongs. There's a great quote by a guy named Colin Cruz in the Letters of John commentary. It's from the Pillar New Testament commentary. Um, And this is not a typo. Behavior in British is spelled with a U. Um, So it has all the vowels there. Um, And so I just want to point that out to you all. So, but the striking thing about the bases of Christian assurance in 1 John. So the way that we know that we are in God, that we have life, that we are walking in light, and that we have love, is that they all appear to be related to objective criteria rather than subjective criteria. In every case, the author notes that it is closely connected with right belief and right behavior, especially loving acts for the benefit of others. Cruz, at the end of the book of 1 John, says, if we want to understand the assurance we have in Christ because of what he has done, we need to recognize that the way we have that assurance is not subjective, I talk to students all the time who worry like, like they're younger and they're like, well, I haven't been baptized yet, so I'm not sure if God loves me. Or I, I, don't, do as, I don't read my Bible as much as I should, so I'm not sure that God loves me. And I'm going to be honest, I, I use students here, but adults, we have these talks too. Or I worry I'm not serving enough. And, and I see people at our church who burn themselves out serving because they want to show God love. And so we do all of these things. And, and the, the problem at some point is... is if, if we're not careful, and if you're like me, at some point I start to think my assurance is based on the subjective criteria of am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? Am I loving God enough? Am I doing enough so that God will love me? As if the cross is not a moment that happened in human history. How can we know that we really have life when all is said and done? The evidence we have eternal life is found in how we live in the light and love one another. If we do these things, we know we have life. And so now we have to talk about doing these things. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Because this is where it gets hard. Because we do not like, we do not like thinking about what keeps us from God. Or when we do, we like to think about the other people. If my job just yeah, no, I can't say that because I'm a pastor here. So I, if, imagine I'm saying this on your behalf, some of you. If my job wasn't so stressful, okay, I can say that. If my job wasn't so stressful, my relationship with God would be better. If, if I was able to spend more time with my family, my relationship with God would be better. If I didn't have such a long commute, if I, if, I, if, I, if I was able to just be in the position I want to be in, if I just had that promotion, if I, I can list off a million things that you might strive towards. If the person I loved loved me back. If, 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 I, just, if I just knew more about the Bible, then I'd start reading it. I, I can come up with a list that just extends and extends if my kids were potty trained. That's my favorite one. But, but I joke about this, but, but I can come up 
with a million things. I can come up with a million things that I think, if this was different in my life, if they saw me differently, I'd be a better pastor for them. If I, if, if, and it gets hard talking about this. No one likes talking about their idols, but the reality is that we do, and we build them in our heads. For me, one of the things I do is after I have conflict with someone is in my head, I go through in my head all of the things that I'm frustrated about and how the conversation went. And I want to think I'm replaying it so I can reflect and move on. But what I'm doing is I'm thinking, if I would have just said that, it would have changed the whole conversation. And what I'm really thinking, let's be honest, is if I would have just said that, they'd view me in the way I wish they viewed me. And I'm idolizing myself or a version of myself that is not even my real self. And what happens is, is we idolize ourselves. All idolatry is about the self. We can say, well, I, I was misled, but the idea is, you, it, we, as Christians, we know who Christ is. And if we settle for anything less, specifically about ourselves, if we say, God, I would love to follow you wholeheartedly, but you've got to do blank for me. And if you've never done that, good for you. I have done that. I have, I have thought that before so many times, and when I, when I come to terms with it, I always know how wicked it is, and then the pattern starts over. Tim Keller, um, who is phenomenal, and if you don't know who he is, um, great books, great sermons. He wrote an article in The Atlantic recently talking about coping with, he, he's got cancer and he may be near the end of his life. And his, his, his I, I don't even, I don't want to talk about it because I, I want to talk about it for an hour and we don't have time for that. He says in some of his books and some of his preaching, an idol is usually a good thing that we make ultimate. We say, unless I have that, I am nothing. I want to be a good father, a good, good father. And there are times, really, a good, good father? Okay. I want to be a good father. I idolize my joke telling, um, and it's not good. Um, but I, an idol is something that we make ultimate, that, that is a good thing. If I am a good father, and if I see that in terms of my life is found, the source of my life is in God, and I do that by walking in the light and loving others. And the way I'm going to be a father is great. But when I say the most important thing in my life is being a good father, it, I, I start worshiping that over God. And not only that, if I start worshiping that even in small ways, the outcome of that is that I'm teaching my children how to avoid life. In my marriage, the same thing. If I want to be a perfect husband at the cost of following God or at, at, and minimize God because I think if my wife just viewed me a certain way, if our relationship just went a certain way, I would be complete. It is foolish idolatry. Keller, another quote, he says, if I have that, my life will have meaning. I'll have value and feel significant and secure. That is the object of your worship. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. If you're in a small group this fall, I want to tell you there's a really simple application to this sermon. And it's one that I hope you will do, and it's up to you to do it. Light week was like five weeks ago now. And was there something when you prepared for that and prayed for that and, and went through that that you said, I can't share that? Because if I share that, how will people in the room look at me? Well, you know what is the that that you fear if you lost 
your life would no longer have meaning. If we've learned one thing from the book of 1 John, it's that we've got to lean into this. If you're not in a small group, if you uh, just whatever Christian community you're in, if you meet with someone, if you've got an accountability partner, lean in. Tell them what you're struggling with. Don't start to set yourself up in a way that you can idolize yourself because it's so destructive. If, if, if I can say it this way, idolatry is pursuing or imagining the kind of person I wish I could be instead of being the person I am called to be in Christ. Idolatry is me thinking about who I want others to think I am and being more motivated by that than letting them see the way the blood of Christ is cleansing my sin instead of letting them see the way that Christ is working in me, instead of letting them see the way that God is helping me overcome sin. And if we cannot do that, we are cheapening what we do. And if we cannot do that at the end of the day, we are missing the heart of life. This is a matter of the life we are supposed to have with God. This is a matter of the fellowship we are supposed to have with God and one another. I know this is heavy and hard. I don't like talking about it. Or I do like talking about it when I don't have to be honest about it. I like telling everyone else about it. Because I'm like, oh, they need that. I don't like thinking about it for myself. But I live in patterns of reflection with others. I have a mentor I call all the time. My wife is going to tell me I shouldn't have untucked my shirt. But more importantly, my wife is someone that we talk to all, like I talk with and I share with. I have others in my life that I make sure they're sharpening me. Tomorrow I've got two guys who are going to tell me how the sermon went and what they thought. And their, their job is to critique it and go deep. And that, that's a simple thing. But I, I try and live in these patterns of feedback loops and of doing this with people. Because I don't want to be blind to my sin. I don't want to idolize myself, and I know that on my own, that is what I will do. And I will hit points where I can't see it anymore. And so I pray for all of you, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Walk with God. God, the source of life, invites us to have life in him. And we do that by walking in the light, confessing our sin, living in community where we're moving further and further away from our sins. When we do sin, instead of hiding it and building up a false image of ourselves, we turn to the Son of God who cleanses our sin and confess in community to make sure that that sin pattern does not stay the same. And in doing that, we give others the opportunity to love us and how they respond. And when others do it, we have the opportunity to love them in the same way. And if we all do that, The fellowship we have is the life we're called to have with God and each other. I talk to many Christians who desire life with God and they want to go deeper with God and somehow they miss out on the fellowship. And because they miss out on the fellowship with each other, they're not able to walk in the light and love each other the way that we're told. If we want to love God, we do that by how we love each other. Little children, and I'm a little child here too, keep ourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you that you are so good. Father, we thank you that you desired that we would have life. You created us for life with you and to walk in the light with you and to love one another. We thank you that that was your intent for us. And we thank you that from the moment sin first entered the world, you had a plan to bring us back. That plan cost you your son's life. And we thank you that he willingly gave it. We know that all things were created through him and through you as a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we thank you that he weighed that cost when he walked to the cross. 
And he was a king who died in the place of every citizen of his kingdom. He was a brother who died in the place of every brother or sister that would be called a child of God. And he did that that we might have the same life that he has offered us. Father, I pray for anyone here who does not know you that today, that after this, they would come find me. I'll be sitting out front. I'd love to talk with them. And I pray for all of us that do know you that, that maybe we know where the idolatry is in our life and we're fighting because we don't want to change. And it's not because we don't want to, but it's because we fear if we would do it. We fear if we would change what it would mean for how we've been living. But Father, we know that perfect love casts out fear and that fear is about judgment. And we might fear that if if we recognize the sin and idolatry in our lives, that that you may not love us anymore, but perfect love casts out that fear because we know the action of your son was a once and for all action in human history. And we know with his resurrection, his promise is secure for all who would call on his name. And so we pray we would be a community and fellowship with you walking in the light, praying for each other to help each other walk out of darkness. We pray that we would be a community that love each other well, that we would show the evidence of the life we have in you by how we regard and treat each other. We thank you that you have given us a perfect example of love, and we pray that we would be those who carry it out to the world and amongst ourselves. It's in your name we pray. Amen.